actors stay in character through an entire shoot. And some, well, they just never let it go. Maybe later we'll have a $5 milkshake. Yeah, how about a Royale with cheese? See what I mean? Pulp Fiction was a masterpiece, but these two think it was all about a dance contest. That's not true, Sam. Pulp Fiction was about a lot of things. Name one. <laughs> Three tomatoes are walking down the street. And she still knows the lines, folks. <laughs> it was all about the contents of this briefcase. That is a bold statement. Do tell. All the murder and mayhem that occurred in two hours and 45 minutes was about what was in here. And at the end of the film, it's not revealed, and the audience still was left to draw their own conclusions about the meaning of existence. Damn, it couldn't help you write that. You know what you should do? You should teach a master class. Actually, I do. <laughs> now, should we finally reveal what's actually in this briefcase? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Here are the nominees for performance by an actor in a leading role. Javier Bardem, being the Ricardos. Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog. Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. Will Smith, King Richard. Denzel Washington, The Tragedy of Macbeth. And the Oscar goes to. Hello there, all you pigs, you dogs, you clamorous harbingers of blood and death. And welcome to season four of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. My name is Lee. And I am Spro, and we're here to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Before we get into this episode and our fourth season of Saltota, we just want to say thank you to everyone who's ever listened, subscribed, or reached out. Honestly, we'd probably do this show in a vacuum, but it's nicer to know we've got you with us. And let us not forget our friends, Mike and Emmy at Odd Dog Coffee for unofficially sponsoring our show and for giving me a job in my hour of need. By the way, listeners, if you happen to be in the Cleveland area and you're fancying a cup of the best coffee you'll ever drink, come and see me, Lee, Monday through Friday outside the Museum of Contemporary Art at the corner of Euclid and Mayfield. Please come support a great local business, get a delicious drink in the bargain, say hi to your favorite podcaster. <laughs> Spro, do you think that's fair? Do you think I'm the favorite? I, your dad probably likes you more. Oh, actually, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. No. Um, <laughs> all right. Did we forget? Uh, there's got to be more people to thank. How about all of the wonderful guests who join us a time mm, or two? Yes. Like Emily, Lawrence, and then also we have this lovely gentleman joining us today. Welcome back, Rudy. Hi, everyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> Rudy, you've been on our little show for like special episodes. You came on the horror show and did a segment. You were on the Alan Rickman tribute part one. And then you were on most recently the Indiana Jones episode. But today you ascend to the ranks of season opener. How the fuck does that feel, sir? <laughs> I'm out of my depth here, y'all. Ecstatic is the word. Yeah, that's what looking. I meant to say. That's okay, what I'm right. ecstatic. All right, Rudy, I'm going to ask you some questions. And I want them <laughs> answered immediately. All right. Number one, 
do you subject yourself to the Academy Awards broadcast? I watch the opening and then I usually turn it off after an hour and a half. Interesting. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not my fault. I have kids. They don't want to watch it. And I got it's, you. Okay. All right. All right. That makes sense. I thought maybe you were turning it off because you were like, blech. No, no. I love awards. Oh. All right. All right. Number two, our more casual listeners may not know this, but you used to do some acting. Did you ever daydream about winning an Oscar? Sure. I think every actor dreams about that. We used to do that in college. We would go to Oscar parties and and watch the Oscars and then just kind of fantasize about one day dressing up and walking the red carpet. And correct me if I'm wrong, Spro, but I know that your dream is more to win like screenplay or maybe even director or producer. I don't know. Definitely screenwriting. And that's like the funny thing is like when you get into the industry, you're like, I'm a writer. And they're like, all right, but what else do you want to do? I'm like, no, I just want to write. And they're like, oh, you just you just want to be a writer. And it's like, yeah, yeah. No, I have no dreams, aspirations. I have no pride, I guess. I just want to be one of those lowly fellows at the bottom. I love the screenwriting award. I mean, if you look back through filmmaking, the screenwriting, especially original screenplay, that's where you see all of the real filmmakers, the ones that have something to say. That's usually the gift that the Academy gives them. I mean, the best example I've, I can give you is Tarantino, most recently Jordan Peele. I love that award. The, you're bringing up a problem I have, though, where it's like, really, the best directors and the best writing awards are going hand in hand. We got into it a little bit last season. We're going to get into a little bit more this season. But writing is an art. And what is on the page is an art form. And nobody's reading these scripts. And so they're not seeing that art form in person. And so what they're doing is they're saying like, oh, look, Quentin Tarantino and Jordan Peele, they know how to bring that script to life. Well, of course they do. They're the ones that wrote it. That writing mixed with that directing is a perfect combination because it comes from the same person. But we have okay. To, so I, what you're saying is that you need to direct your first script, Hollywood script. Apparently, nobody's going to think I'm great until I do that. But <laughs> if I want to be truthful, I think like I would feel more awarded if I got a Guild Award, if I got the Screenwriters Guild Award. And the more we dive into it, the more I'm like looking at the Independent Spirit Awards and being like, wow, there's some true craft there that I would love to be like in the same pool with those people. So, all right, bro, this isn't about you. So, <laughs> uh, back to Rudy. So, you did daydream about winning an Oscar. Question number three yes. What was the last movie or performance that just knocked you on your ass? Doesn't even have to be a recent one, just maybe the most recent one that you saw that you were just spellbound by. Ooh, the one that I most recently saw, and I'm showing my hand here Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. So one of the movies that you were supposed to watch as your Mm. homework for this episode is the last one that knocked you on your ass. Yeah. What did you like about it? Oh my gosh, I didn't see it coming. And maybe that's because I live under a rock, but I felt like in Spider-Man No Way Home, he was very charming and and brought so much to the screen. And I've always seen him in that light. And then it was just kind of something very different about him in Tick, Tick, Boom. I don't want to get into it too much and save it for the pod, you know, but I was like genuinely surprised. Spro, you like that movie too, right? I'm not showing my hand. All right. Number four, Rudy. Yeah. Do you even drink coffee? And if you do, how do you take your coffee? Black. Yeah. Nice. When did you start drinking coffee? You didn't drink coffee in college. None of us did. We were made fun of because our coffee pot was dirty when we had guests. (laughs) I started drinking coffee in 2017. 
I used to drink those horrible energy drinks. One day my eyes started to like flutter back and forth really quick. Whoa. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, this is probably That's, not a good idea anymore. Squirrel so, laughs. <laughs> That's terrifying. It was, it was, but you know, and, and now I've I've discovered the joys of coffee, and I'm having. Did somebody that. turn you on to coffee? My my wife. I know, it's always like, women. I know. Always I was women. like, I'm so tired, and she's like, just start drinking coffee. And the longest time, I was like, well, I don't drink coffee black. And then she said, put coconut milk in it. And so I would drink coffee with coconut milk, and then that just didn't do it. So I just started drinking it black, and I love it. Ever since watching Coffee Wars and talking with the filmmakers behind Coffee Wars, I have switched to oat milk, oat creamer. Mm. It took me a while. I had to try about, man, eight or nine of them, but I got the, <laughs> I did. Some of them are too thin. They don't have that same richness. If you just it drink it black, you don't have to worry about being vegan or not or da da da. You oh, just I don't want to drink it black. I don't want to like drink it black. Like a badass. Rudy is more of a badass than I am. All right. It's time to get into this. Enough preamble. We're going to go back, not too far back, to the 27th of March in the year 2022, when a dastardly man did a devious thing. And instead of being castigated, he was rewarded with a little gold statue. Will Smith! Now, longtime listeners will remember Spro and I actually gave Will Smith an Oscar. We took it away from Mr. Denzel Washington for his performance in Training Day, and we gave it to Big Willie for portraying Ali. Richard Williams um, was a fierce defender of his family. In this time in my life, in this moment, I am overwhelmed by what God is calling on me to do and be in this world. Making this film, I got to protect Ingenue Ellis, who was one of the most, the strongest, most delicate people I've ever met. I got to protect Sanaya and Demi, the two actresses that played Venus and Serena. I'm being called on in my life to love people and to protect people and to be a river to my people. And I know to do what we do, you gotta be able to take abuse, you gotta be able to have people talk crazy about you. In this business, you gotta be able to have people disrespecting you. And you gotta smile and you gotta pretend like that's okay. But Richard Williams 
And what I loved, thank you, D. Denzel said to me a few minutes ago, he said, at your highest moment, be careful, that's when the devil comes for you. It's like, I want to be a vessel for love. I want to say thank you to Venus and Serena. I just spit. I hope they didn't see that on TV. Um, I want to say thank you to Venus and Serena and the Tyre Williams family for entrusting me with your story. That's what I want to do. I want to be an ambassador of that kind of love and care and concern. Um, I want to apologize to the Academy. I want to apologize to my, all my fellow nominees. Um, this is a beautiful moment, and I'm not I'm not, I'm not crying for winning a, an award. It's not, it's not about winning an award for me. It's about being able to shine light on all of the people, Tim and, and Trevor and Zach and Sanaya and Demi and Ingenue and the entire cast and crew of King Richard and Venus and Serena, the, the entire Williams family. Um, Art imitates life. I look like the crazy father, just like they said. <laughs> I look like crazy father, just like they said about Richard Williams. Um, but love will make you do crazy things. Um, to my mother, um, a lot of this moment is really complicated for me, but uh, to, to my mother, um, she didn't want to come out. She was, had her knitting friends. She has a knitting crew that she's in Philly watching, <laughs> watching with. Um, um, being able to love and care for my mother and my family, my wife. Um, I'm taking up too much time. Uh, thank you for this honor. Thank you for this moment, and thank you on behalf of Richard and, and Orsine, the entire Williams family. Um, thank you. Uh, uh, Hope the Academy invites me back. Thank you. <laughs> Rudy, I kind of want to give you the floor for a moment because you had some thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was so accusatory. Just that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had thoughts. That was a tough one for me because I loved Ali. I had picked Will Smith to win the Oscar, but there's that Jada Kiss line, why did Denzel have to be crooked before he took it? About you know him winning the Oscar for training day. It was a, a Sophie's Choice situation for me. I 
that episode, oh man, I remember listening to that episode and texting y'all immediately being like, oh, this is driving me crazy because it's like we're taking one from somebody who deserved it, but did he deserve it for that role and giving it to somebody who definitely deserved it, but didn't get recognized. It was really strange. I mean, that was a hard episode. If you look at the history of Saltota, we have given Denzel now two awards. We've given him one for the hurricane over Kevin Spacey because mm-hmm. we had to take it away from Kevin Spacey and we've given it to him for his portrayal in Malcolm X. So he has two awards according to us. And we have also said Denzel is one of, you know, he's probably a Rushmore actor. The single tier. The single tier, yes. <laughs> but when it comes to that year and all the preparation that Will Smith put into his portrayal of Muhammad Ali, the fact that they were like, we're not going to just make this a prosthetic nightmare. You are going to have to just show people that you can embody this man mm-hmm. and make people forget that you are Will Smith. And I think he did a fantastic job. Spro had to sell me on that episode. <laughs> and we, I mean, there's he, he is a tough negotiator. If there's something that I want, he makes me fight for it. It's always no the first time with Spro. Yeah. Well, that's my favorite word. Is that fair, Spro? Yeah. No, I always always say no first because you don't think things through. And so I give you the first no to say, hey, go back. Think about your impulsive decision right now. And if you're still impulsive the second time, I'll consider it. (laughs) It was a hard sell for me, but I got on board because even though I would rather watch Training Day again, I think Ali is a better story. I will watch Training Day again, but I have to say that I think Will Smith's work that he put into Ali is more than Denzel's work that he put into Training Day. Mm. Okay. Well, I was going to ask if you wanted to relitigate it. It sounds like you still feel the same way, bro. Yeah. All right. So on this night in question, Will Smith pretty much destroyed whatever goodwill he had and embarrassed himself on what should have been the best night of his career. As for his Oscar-winning performance in King Richard, it's fine. Frankly, I was more impressed by the two young girls who played Venus and Serena, and I would have preferred a more balanced story where the two daughters got more screen time. Ultimately, I I think this Oscar was more about recognizing Smith's career and not because he gave the best performance of the year. When I was a little boy, I grew up in Shreveport. One day my father took me to town he give me this money to pay this white man for something. Back in them days, black folks weren't allowed to touch white peoples. So I went to get a man this money and I accidentally touched his hand and he stopped beating on me. He knocked me down, his friends come over, they all start stomping on me and beating on me. And I look up and I see my father in the crowd and he took off running. Left me there with these grown men beating on me. Now, I haven't been no great daddy, but I never done nothing but try to protect you. This next step you got to take, it would, it would be hard for anybody But for you, you're not going to just be representing you. You're going to be representing every little black girl on earth. And you're going to be the one got to go through that gate. And I just never wanted you to look up and see your daddy running away. 
daddy, you always said I'd be number one in the world, right? Let's go out there and show all of those people that I can handle what's coming. And I'm not gonna let you down. How could you, Julia? Thoughts on King Richard? Uh, look, when you floated this idea to me, I almost declined because I loved his performance in King Richard so much. And yes, I do get a celebration, a culmination of his his work over the years. This was his moment. But I remember watching that movie and feeling like, my goodness, this is not your typical Will Smith performance. And I felt wholeheartedly he deserved to win the Oscar. And then everything transpired and it became very difficult. Uh, and, you know, you got to separate the art from the artist. I think he definitely like fucked himself over with his actions. It's weird because this episode is like a Poly Academy meets a quickie where we're not taking the Oscar away because of the performance. We're taking it away because of the off-screen <laughs> behavior. If we are going to celebrate celebrity... Do we have to celebrate all of them? Is there enough of them where we could say, okay, you don't deserve this anymore and we're going to take it away from you? King Richard, his portrayal in King Richard was great. When you look at his performances in Seven Pounds, Pursuit of Happiness, Concussion, I liked his performances in Hancock and Independence Day. I don't think Will Smith ever really turns in a false performance. And this one had it all. And I feel like he really became who he wanted to become with what he portrayed on screen. And that comes out in his Oscar acceptance speech. It was all about Richard Williams and what he gravitated toward in the role. And I think what he put on screen is kind of who he wants to be as a person, which is funny because it's not 100% great person. Interesting. So neither of you guys agree with me. You don't think this was a career thank you. You felt as though his performance was deserving. I think we we even said it in the previous episode where we said if he wins for King Richard, we like that. You know, like that's fine with us. I think that's on record of Spro and Leave Take on the Academy. Oh, right? Fuck. Well, I guess it is then. I just don't want it to be about Spro's Old Testament desire for punishment. <laughs> Wait till you hear the fun but fact. But maybe, oh no. But maybe it is. Maybe it is. Regardless, we're taking the Oscar away tonight. We just need to figure out who we're giving it to instead. But before we get into that, oh my God. Let's turn to Spro for an Oscar fun fact brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. Hey, Spro. Yeah. Do you have any kind of routine when we get ready to record these podcasts? Oh, yeah, absolutely, man. I like I sign in 15 minutes early. I put on my headphones, pace about the house anxiously, listen for you to get on, prepare all my beverages. Um, Be beverages. Uh, Plural, multiple beverages? <laughs> multiple, yeah. I have my hot, my cold, my flavorful, and maybe like a water. Wow. You must have a bladder the size of a Buick. All I have is a big cup of coffee to get the cobwebs out. And coffee is my hot. Oh, all right. Well, I bet I can guess what kind of coffee you're drinking. Is it Okay. Is it odd dog, just the beans? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, yeah, you're right on. Good job. But no, all right, all right. Your flavor. Well, I think you you're the spicy sweet bastard, so it must be cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. Yeah, that is correct. Odd dog, cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. My favorite coffee blend of all time. Spro, for three years now, you and I have been sharing a lot of our opinions about movies and the Oscars. And dear listeners, if you've come to trust us, 
then trust this. Odd Dog Coffee deserves all the awards. Odd Dog Coffee is a mobile cafe and coffee retailer owned and operated by our friends Mike and Emmy Hancock. They're kind of like the independent filmmakers of the coffee world. Odd Dog blends are honed with the freshest ingredients, prepared by honest quality, hands-on methodical merchants. These guys endeavor to make you the richest, most delicious cup of coffee you've ever tasted. And they have a lot of fun doing it too. Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from their original roasts, just the beans, cardamom, and clove spite, or their cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao mix. It's good. Like, really good. <laughs> like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its obsession, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar yet distinctly odd. The movies we watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. Why are we here? Why are we even here? If you remember, dear listener, we went back to Art Carney's award over Al Pacino in The Godfather Part Two, and then we gave Al's award for Scent of a Woman to Denzel for Malcolm X, and then we gave Denzel's Training Day Award to Will Smith for Ali, and we said, that's it. And then we saw Will Smith going to actually win an award for King Richard, and we thought, there, done. And then Will Smith acted a fool. Jada, I love you. G.I. Jane 2, can't wait to see it. That was it. That was all the joke was. A joke so harmless, the audience didn't even, ooh. Will Smith laughs, but gets on stage. And before Chris Rock can register what's happening, he calls Will Smith by his character's name, Richard? And Will Smith slaps him in such a way where it almost looks like he hits his chest, too, in a stage combat stance, leaving conspiracy theorists to be like, well, it was all set up. Chris gets rocked, puts his hands up in either offense or defense, but Will has already turned around to casually stroll back to his seat as if he just fixed Rock's tie or something. Chris recovers by saying, Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. But Will is still fuming and says, keep my wife's name out your fucking mouth. And this is where Will Smith gets it wrong because at the slap, nobody knew if it was real or not. Nobody knew how to take it. There was even some chuckles in the audience. Everybody could have played it off and everybody could have went off into their night thinking that was a silly, crazy moment. But Will Smith starts yelling in the audience and Rock says, wow, dude. And Smith says, yes. And Rock says, it was a G.I. Jane joke. Smith reiterates, keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. And the audience at home now knows something's wrong. Not because Will Smith looks angry. Will Smith has always looked that angry in movies. We recognize that Will Smith, but Lupita looks scared behind him. And now we know something's wrong. Now we know something's off because Lupita's face. And Rock relents and says, I'm going to. Okay? And he continues off with the show. Afterwards, Tyler Perry and Denzel Washington take Will Smith aside to make sure he was okay, while Chris Rock stood alone on stage. Chris Rock was actually criticized by The Roots' Quest Love for how he said, Some white guy. Summer of soul! When the revolution cannot be televised! Amir Thompson! And four white guys! Which we may have to revisit if that was the best documentary because I watched it and was underwhelmed. Nobody from the Academy really had shit to say that night. They gave Will Smith the award for best actor. And if you Google longest acceptance speeches, you'll learn about Greer Garson back in 1943 talking for five and a half minutes. After five minutes and six seconds, Will Smith says that he's taking up too much time. And then after five minutes and 21 seconds, he takes his leave. But from the time he's on stage until he dismisses himself, one can argue Will Smith had the longest acceptance speech of all time, and he had just hit somebody on the stage. 
This isn't the fun fact. We all know this. My fun fact is this. Will Packer, the lead producer of the Academy Awards that year, went on a media spree talking about all the behind the scenes stuff. Now to our ABC News exclusive interview with Oscar show producer Will Packer, TJ. He was just immediately freestyling, but I thought this was part of something that Chris and Will were doing on their own. I thought it was a bit. I thought it was a bit like everybody else. I Not knew we concerned. hadn't practiced it. Not concerned. I wasn't concerned at all. As he's walking. I figured, okay, you know, he's going to say something or come at him. Something funny is going to happen okay. because that's the nature of Chris and that's the nature of Will. So... Let's see what happens. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going to, okay? Once I saw Will yelling at the stage with such vitriol, my heart dropped. And I just remember thinking, oh no, oh no, not like this. And Chris was keeping his head when everybody else was losing theirs. But my heart at that point was just in my stomach because of everything about it and what it represented and what it looked like and who was involved. All of that was just, um, I've never felt so immediately devastated like I did in that moment. And I immediately go up to Chris. And you say what or you do what? I said, did he really hit you? And he looked at me and he goes, yeah. He goes, I just took a punch from Muhammad Ali, as only Chris can. He was immediately, you know, in, in joke mode, but you could tell that he was uh, very much still in shock. I made that clear, like, Rock, you tell me, whatever you want to do, brother. And he was telling me, I'm fine. Let's just get past this. I'm getting out of here. I can't believe this happened. The LAPD came and needed to talk to Chris. And so they came into my office and they were laying out very clearly what Chris's rights were. And they were saying, this is battery. We will go get him. We are prepared. We're prepared to get him right now. You can press charges. We can arrest him. As they were talking, Chris was, um, he was being very dismissive of those options. He was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. He was like, no, no, no. And even to the point where I said, I said, Rock, let him, let him finish. And they said, you know, would you like us to take any action? And he said, no. He said, no. And I didn't have any conversation with Will. It happened to be right before uh, the Best Actor Award. Shayla told me that they were about to physically remove Will Smith. And I had not been a part of those conversations. And so I immediately went to the academy leadership that was on site and I said, Chris Rock doesn't want that. Chris Rock saved the Oscars that night? Did he save the show that night? Hmm. I think he did. I think he did. It's just remarkable wow. how honest and how yeah. authentic. I mean, he's not he's not lawyered up. He's not telling you what, you know, uh-huh. you want to hear. He's just telling you what happened. And he's telling you about his experience. Fuck Will Packer. This is the man who did nothing. This is the man who shouldn't have a job. This is the man who watched one of his own hosts get accosted and then not do anything to the abuser and also give him an award and give him all the time he wanted on stage when acceptance speeches should be cut short after 45 seconds. Will Smith talked for at least five minutes and 21 seconds. Will Packer, producer of Girls Trip, and the man who can't run a goddamn show to save his life, the man who let the greatest, most prestigious night of Hollywood turn into a shit show and then use that shit show to try and get his 15 minutes.
Honestly, who produces the Oscars? As an Oscar lover, I don't even know. But I do know this. I know about Will Packer. Will Packer went on the morning shows to tell people he was the man. He was the man behind it all. Fuck Will Packer. We're here because of Chris Rock's joke. We're here because of Jada Pinkett Smith's toxic femininity. We're here because Will Smith lost his goddamn mind. And we're here because Will Packer didn't do his fucking job. So now let's do ours. Wow. Was that angry? (laughs) (laughs) It was a little angry. I Um, feel bad. Just hearing you angrily say, keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth was... Yeah. It sat right in my chest when you said it. I was like, woof. It was such a nasty moment. Which is interesting. And I think it's just because we watch it through the lens of like, oh, ha ha ha, it's the Oscars. It's fun time. But the fact that we were all like, I mean, it's not the same at all, but I just watched JFK again the other day and it was kind of like seeing Lee Harvey Oswald get shot on television. Obviously not as crazy heavy as that, but yeah, it was, it was a moment where we were like, was that fucking real? And then as soon as Chris Rock was like, I could... And then he doesn't say anything else. And you know what he was going to say? You know, he's going to be like, I could fucking destroy you and your dumbass wife right now. And he didn't. It took him a year to come up with the, you know, everybody's calling him a bitch. And it wasn't good. Like, no, you talking about his Netflix special? Yeah. Yeah, it was bad. I bought tickets. I took MC and we went to go see Chris Rock when he came to Playhouse Square in Cleveland. And it was funny. I liked it. It taught me a lot, actually, of a world that I'm not a part of. But I wanted more. And I just felt bad for the man because afterwards you find out that he grew up being bullied. So Will Packer's whole thing is, well, I went up to Chris and he was like, no, don't do anything, man. Like, I'm good. I just want to go home. And so that's why they didn't do anything to Will Smith because Chris Rock told him not to. And it's like, bro, he just got victimized. If you want to stand up for the victim, go after the attacker. Of course, Chris Rock is going to be like, hey, let's not make a fuss out of this and whatnot. But like somebody has to put Will Smith in his fucking place. And they did not. They awarded him and gave him all the time that he wanted on stage. That is that is as sugar footing around as you could possibly do. Either during the ceremony or directly after. I think it was during. Will Packer tweeted something to the effect of, did I tell you or did I tell you that this was going to be the Oscar show of all Oscar shows? It was a disgusting moment. I mean, just from that moment on, because you're you're faced with the situation where this toxic masculinity takes over and really eclipses the event and the environment. And then no one can make anything right in that moment. Would they have like an hour and a half, two hours to try and make it right? And like you said, they end up giving him the award. And then there are a bunch of people in the room who witnessed it clapping for the the man who was the attacker just a couple of an hour and a half ago. They're all standing and clapping for him and applauding him while Chris Rock is in the back being like, I just got slapped on national TV. It was a really horrible, disgusting moment. Then like you hear like, you know, how upset his mom was to see it and everything like that. And it's like, oh, everything broke my heart about it. What I think Will Smith kind of went through was like a mental break. Have you Mm -hmm. ever and this is like one of my top fears. There's been like plenty of audiences and crowds that I sat in and was like, dear God, don't black out now and do something stupid on stage, like running up and doing something like I before all this, I've had that fear. Has anybody else experienced that fear of like, my God, this would be the worst time to experience a mental break? Yeah, I, you know, there, I'm I'm of two minds. I battle all the time. Uh, Spro knew me at a time when I would fly off the handle pretty quickly if provoked, and I feel like I've grown more as uh, an individual. And, really? But 
Yeah. I don't feel that energy from you even in the slightest. That's called growth, homie. No, now, <laughs> like, now I kind of want to antagonize you a little bit. <laughs> I like you too much. They, they just make me happy and smile. But no, like I feel the same way where there have been moments where I've had to, in my head, say, all right, don't fly off the handle. Take a couple deep breaths, you know, because I don't want to make a situation worse. I'm not a violent person, so I don't I don't worry that I'm going to like lose my shit and stab somebody with a butter knife or something, but I do fear my own mind, and I think that's kind of the same thing. Does that answer your question, Spro? Yeah. That's so why you have, you have those moments, huh? I haven't had them for a while. I don't think like since the Will Smith moment, like I was like, oh, I'm never going to do that. It's usually like during like a live performance, but like when you're like sitting in like the crowd and you're like about to fall asleep, kind of, if it's a boring <laughs> show and you're like, don't fall asleep and like sleepwalk to the stage and just do something completely <laughs> unforgivable. I always have those moments because you look at the crazy people and you're like, they don't know that they're crazy. Yet they're like on the sidewalk taking a shit and slapping their ass. What? That's Hollywood. Do you do, <laughs> do you do things in your sleep? I do have a sleep problem. I start hallucinating before I fall asleep. Yeah, everybody does. There used to be a, a thing. The women that... I take to bed seem to think it's weird. <laughs> nice flex, bro. How's married life? <laughs> oh, my God. It's wonderful. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> As an actor, I've heard other actors say that like sometimes they'll be sitting watching a play and they'll think, I could just walk up on the stage right now. You know, like the thought crosses their mind about being in the audience and ending up on the stage somehow. I, I think that kind of relates a little bit to what yeah. you're asking, bro. That's like, that's, yeah, it's like intrusive thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Let's hit the unnominated first. Let's go in alphabetical order from the title of the film. And let's start with a movie called Ali and Ava and a man named Adil Akhtar. That's what I'm looking for you, isn't it? Oh, oh, God. I don't want to go home. I like being here with you. Plus, uh, it's not safe for me to drive because I've had a... What? Well, that's a universal (laughs) sign for drink. I've had a drink. But, yeah, you have only had one of them. Yeah, but... Take a good look at me. My <laughs> constitution, I'm not used to it. So, oh. so. Is that why you've had a drink? Plus, you can't get a taxi if I love no money. So. I could get you a local taxi. Okay, yeah. Very easily. I want to stay. <sighs> You can have Callum's room. This one caught me by surprise. It's an unlikely love story between two Englanders, North Englanders, who are both very lonely and hurting. And the acting throughout is very good. And it's a very sweet film. And it's directed so well. But Adil Akhtar, he was far and away my favorite thing about this movie, followed closely by all the needle drops and music talks. This is a great movie. I know the two of you guys didn't see this one. I recommend it highly. Next on the list is a movie called Boiling Point and an actor named Stephen Graham, who I first saw in Guy Ritchie's Snatch. Boiling Point, I've seen it before. It was an absolute pleasure to revisit. 
It happens in real time with no cuts, and it takes place in a fledgling restaurant where the employees are anything but happy in their work, and some pretty serious shit is bubbling underneath the surface. I really like this movie. And while Stephen Graham as Andy is wonderful, as always, and the filmmaking is risky and inventive, Vanette Robinson absolutely steals the show for me. The scene where she tells off the restaurant owner is sublime. All of that said, I still really relate to Andy's struggles and that feeling of falling deeper and deeper into a hole until you can barely see the light of day anymore resonates with me. How'd you wash your hands, love? I know, dear. Sorry, what? In the sink. In the sink. Which All sink? Right. Andy. That's Which one. sink? Andy. No, hang on, Carly. No, 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 no. Carly, wait a minute, love. This she, is she Carly. Carly. This is fucking basic GCSE yeah. fucking cooking school. Yeah, and it's her first week, so it's my responsibility. It's not a first week in any fucking kitchen, though, is it? You've worked in kitchens before, haven't you? Yes. Yeah? Yes. That's why you're here. You've worked in kitchens before, yeah? Yes. Yes what? Yes, chef. Yes, chef. So what's that sink for, kid? Food. For what? Food. What do you not do in that sink? Wash your hands. Wash your what? Hands. Wash your hands, yeah. Fucking gobshite here. Yeah? You using the wrong fucking sink. And you, soft ass, what are you playing at? Uh, what do you mean, chef? What do you mean? What do I mean? What the fuck are you doing? Uh, I'm not... I'm not supposed to be on this section, chef. Tony, how long have you worked here, lad? No, I've been here... No, but it's Hobbs. It's Tony. Hobbs. Tony, how long have you worked here, son? Yeah. A year? He's saying you've got no fucking gloves on. Oh. Cross-contamination with the oysters. Got yeah, chef, put your fucking gloves on. Sorry. Put your gloves on, son. Now, sorry. listen, Tony, you book your fucking ideas up, lad, cos there's a million kids out there who would die for this fucking opportunity yes, that sir. you've been given. Yes, sir. Yeah? Yes, sir. Show some fucking respect. Respect your fucking self. Honestly, my only beef with the film is the ending, which I will not spoil because I would absolutely recommend this movie to everyone listening. But I do have beef with with how it goes down. Even that, though, comes with a caveat because I think that the final song, Poltergeists by Sam Fender, which plays over the closing shots and then into the credits is just dazzling. I think about one of your favorite quotes from the movie Zodiac, and I think you've quoted it twice so far on the run of Saldota, which is, how does one do that? I think this is one of those films that everybody should see because of its execution. I don't understand unless they rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. I mean, they obviously had to rehearse and rehearse and rehearse every single detail about this movie because the camera movements, the storytelling, everything unfolds at a natural pace, which is both what I like and don't like about the film. I watched the short first. I actually signed up for Amazon Shorts, which is $1.99 a month, I think, after a 30-day free trial. Seems like something that I'm really going to enjoy because 30 minutes is about the length that I can do on a treadmill. But the original short was 30 minutes, and that was, to me, perfection, how it all unfolded and finished. I didn't realize I was watching the short and I was like, that wasn't an hour and a half. And I was like, no, that was the 30 minute short. Fuck, I got to go watch the full length. And I did all 90 minutes of it. And it seemed to drag in parts for me because of the naturalism, because they were letting things unfold at a natural pace. I liked the short better because the short is in an enclosed kitchen and there's so much more that you can do. Everybody that in the service industry knows it's in an enclosed kitchen that you have the most fun, where in the full length film, everything is one of those kitchens that the diners can just look into, which kind of makes everything a little bit more subtle, a little bit more quiet. And I like the closed kitchen. The closed kitchen aspect to me is more like the bear on Hulu. 
I really liked Stephen Graham's performance. And I didn't even realize until you just said it that he's the guy from Snatch. He is phenomenal. But if the writing bores me at points and this guy's the lead and he's pretty much in every single shot, it's going to be hard to award a best performance, even though I think this is one of the greatest performances of the year. So I kind of brushed over it. Spro, you touched on it a little bit, but I don't know that we made it 100% clear. This movie is one shot all the way through. They did it in the same way that a stand-up would do, you know, two shows, a 7.30 and a 9.45 or whatever. Or the same way that a theater troupe would put on a matinee show and then an evening show. Once they had rehearsed, I mean, to the nth degree, it was just a matter of which was the most flawless performance. It amazes me. It's one of these movies that I've talked about before that I will talk about again, that when I watch it, I really want to be a part of that process. This movie is so fucking special. It's not the greatest movie in the world, but God damn it, it's trying to do something unique. And I don't see a lot of that. The thing that like surprised me the most is the actual kitchen techniques being used. Now I love Chef. John Favreau like put all that effort into his technique and skills. And in Boiling Point, same thing. They're all cutting, they're all dicing, and in the same motion, they're gesturing with those knives. So you know the knives are real, but they're waving it in each other's face and anger and da da da. Like I have never been more scared, I guess, for like actors on set because I'm like, holy shit, like these are real knives that they're like waving. It's just this was such a pleasure to rewatch. This is one that I would want to own and watch all the time. And that fucking song. Did you like that song, Poltergeists? I actually didn't notice it. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Oh, my gosh. We just, like, agreed for, like, five minutes. <laughs> Go piss up a rope. I didn't remember the song. <laughs> we never agree. Next on the list is Come On, Come On and Joaquin Phoenix's performance in that, but neither of my two co-hosts today want to talk about it. So I guess we'll move on to Cyrano starring Peter Dinklage. Spro, you want to take this one? Sure. So I was super excited for Cyrano uh, with Cyrano de Bergiac. I remember this is Peter Dinklage. He was going on a media tour around town talking about this and also how disgusted he was at Disney at the same time for doing Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. And then there was a whole lot of backlash against Peter Dinklage because he was ruining jobs for dwarves in the industry when everybody was like, well, you could play Cyrano and we're just struggling for work. So this whole thing came about and I was like, you know what? I'm super excited though to see what Peter Dinklage does and the fact that it was a musical and I'm loving you know musicals like The Greatest Showman Moulin Rouge Chicago I love all these musicals coming out but then there's also musicals like La La Land and like Cyrano where it has songs that just aren't going to be earworms when you leave the theater Peter Dinklage, I think, is amazing. Peter Dinklage did pull off this role. I think Peter Dinklage could pull off really any role that he plays. But this does nothing to the canon, like Steve Martin in Roxanne. So I don't have too much to say. This isn't an award-worthy performance, I don't think. And it's not even, this is another one. It's not really his fault that the music wasn't great. And so there's nothing really to go home and talk about. But the music wasn't great, and there's nothing to go home and talk about. It's something like happiness It's something like hunger And something like fear 
I'd give anything for someone to say All the words I don't have and I can't put together I'd give anything for someone to say to her That she's all I can think about And I can't live without her when they started singing, <laughs> I was like, the fuck is this a musical? Because I don't really watch musicals, but th I stuck through this one. I enjoyed it. I don't feel like it was a stretch for Peter Dinklage. He is an amazing actor. He is charismatic. You know, the, gosh, the screen loves that guy. Let's totally. be honest, just something about him. And so I didn't feel like this character really showed the breadth of his ability. And while it was a great performance, I agree, Spro. I don't think it's award worthy. I don't think he really had to step outside of himself. He didn't really bring something different. Every single fucking role that he takes incorporates his stature, which is kind of fucked up. Peter Dinklage must be a pretty down-to-earth guy. I think it's nice that Dinklage's wife created this vehicle. Yes, okay. But he's better than this. I just, I don't see why every single role that he plays has to incorporate his size. That's all. All right, moving on. Next on the list is Don't Look Up and Leo DiCaprio. I can't even remember his character's name. And I've watched this movie all the way through once. And then I rewatched. Man, I got about two-thirds of the way through it, and I couldn't go on. I couldn't believe I made it that far. This movie just does not work for me. And while I will confess that this role is certainly a departure for DiCaprio, he didn't deserve a nomination. In fact, if anybody from this movie deserved something, it was Mark Rylance. It's always Mark Rylance playing the billionaire weirdo tech magnate uh, <laughs> Peter Isherwell. When he tells DiCaprio, like when he gets mad at DiCaprio and is like, you think you know me? I know who you are. And he tells him that he's a field mouse. That's worth watching the movie just to see him. You and I had the same experience watching this movie. I didn't finish it. It felt like less cool Armageddon and that's okay. But you're 100% right. It was something that you don't usually see Leonardo DiCaprio do. Like, you know, he's in the serious roles. He's the yeah. alpha. And this is not that role for him. It was... He's a field mouth. <laughs> it's a field mouth. <laughs> yes, you're 100% right. The billionaire, the Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Cook character, he was more interesting to me. And I, I admire what the film tried to do. And I admire what Leonardo DiCaprio did as far as like not being the alpha, but I wasn't inspired by it. All right, let's move on. <laughs> To one good. that I am really excited to talk about, The Green Knight and Dev Patel's performance as Gawain. Wait. Wait. I, like every episode, like we always do, watched a lot of movies. And of the ones that I hadn't seen before, this one is my favorite. Spro, in the past, I have suggested to you and MC for Second Chance Cinema consideration, Darren Aronofsky's Noah. 
I think it's way better than anybody ever gave it credit for. But I bring it up because Aronofsky, because Aronofsky tried doing with Noah what David Lowry succeeds at here. He retells this classic tale with elements of fantasy and horror. He takes something weather-worn and respected and frankly makes a mockery of it. It's great. Lowry's Gawain, played by Dev Patel, is a poo butt and a baby back bitch. Unlike the Gawain of Arthurian legend, he isn't a fucking hero. And before you ask, and Spro, I feel like you would, no, I have not read Gawain and the Green Knight. Were you going to ask me that? I was, but I, I was more gonna. I wasn't gonna like put you on the spot. Like, dude, did you read the fucking poem? I was more no. interested to be like, what was the similarity? I was very excited to learn something from you, and now I'm not surprised. I won't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I love you, buddy. <laughs> oh my goodness, <laughs> I'm on one today. Patel plays Gawain with this unapologetic cowardice and self-preservation, and that kind of Gawain rings true to me. I don't see a whole lot of gallantry in the world and certainly not in the younger generations. I see fear and I feel it too. So I look at this film as an indictment of the modern man, and I'm including myself, or maybe even a confession of our shortcomings. No, this one I really liked. I remember when it came out in theaters, people were neither here nor there about it. And like the trailers were just mesmerizing to me. But then the reaction kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I was like, well, I guess I won't venture out to see it. I wish I had. I wish I had seen this in the theater. And Patel is just right there on the cusp of greatness. I think people know his name. People definitely know his face at this point. But he's releasing these films that are just not doing what he needs to be done to his name. And that's kind of making me sad because I don't know what role I want to see him in. Kind of like this. But man, I do believe one day we'll see him winning Best Actor. It's just not with this film. I agree with you. I, the movie is mesmerizing. It's lovely. It's a lot beautiful to watch. Would you say his performance is nominated worthy? I would be fine with him being nominated. Because you also got Denzel this year. I think there are some folks that got nominated that never should have. All right. I think he plays an absolutely wonderful pussy. And I relate to that. (laughs) Next is a movie called In the Heights and an actor named Anthony Ramos. I really avoid musicals. I like this one a lot, a lot more than I thought I would. The songs, the choreography, the sets, the visuals. I mean, it's a really spectacularly directed film. Yeah. But Anthony Ramos is not best actor material. Interesting. I don't think there's a single person in the movie that put forth a award-worthy performance. Yeah, I think I get what you're saying. I think it's because that the ensemble is so strong that not one stands out. I was introduced to Anthony Ramos through Hamilton and to see him as kind of the lead. And this is this is one of those iconic roles that every young actor that's in musical theater wants to do. But like, it's really, it's not easy. And I think he did a really good job of like not carrying the movie, but being the, the lead, being the focal point. We got to see more of him in this role and instead of just an ensemble member in Hamilton. It's tough to give him an Oscar nomination, but I could like sneak him in as like a dark horse, like at the bottom. Like he's like 
last on the list. So that's where I was at. Vanessa! You abandoned me. Yo, what are you talking about? You snobby all night. You barely even danced with me. Don't make me laugh. I've been trying all night. You've been shaking your ass for like half of the ice. Real nice. You barely gave me a chance all evening. What? Do I get another dance? I'm leaving. Vanessa! I burn a lot of bridges on this show, so let me just say, me and Anthony Ramos go way back, all right? First time I talked to him on the phone, just woke him up in Puerto Rico. I was standing in a Gaga pit in Westlake, Ohio. We were pitching him one of my movies. And all I got to say was like, you're going to be the most badass Jesus Christ that has ever been on screen. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And I was like, I know you just got to read my script. So I have always loved Anthony Ramos. We're talking about seeing him in Hamilton, in the Heights. I'm so glad for him. I'm so happy for him that his movie Transformers Rise of the Beast was released this year. It's great. And there's supposedly going to be a crossover of another movie series that he's going to be a part of. He's coming out in some other projects that I can't talk about right now. But in the same instance, Anthony Ramos is going to blow up and I can't be more happy for him whether or not he does my movie, but I think he should. I think he's one of the hardest working men currently going on. And if you like good music, I would also put him on your Pandora. Yeah, he's, he's got in. a great voice. And this he's got the Dinklage thing where like he's got charisma. He's got that uh, uh, suavecito. Something about him that draws you in to his performances. I'm excited for his future. All right, let's move on to Licorice Pizza starring Cooper Hoffman as Gary. Spro, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this movie. I wrote some stuff, but I kind of would like to hear what you have to say first. This movie just creeps me out. It creeps me out. I feel like Hollywood has a weird thing about statutory rape and statutory relationships and whatever it is. Like, Just stop trying to plug relationships of an older person and an underaged other person. Whether or not the older person is male and the underage is female, whether or not the overage is male and call me by your name, underage male, like stop. Like Hollywood has this image problem right now of people being like, what is this dark secret that Corey Feldman and all these people are like alluding to of like these like Brian Singer sex parties. And it's like this movie, like I sat in this movie theater and was like, I'm excited for PTA's new movie because I like PTA. I like his offerings. And then I get this and I'm like, I can't shut my brain off from all the dirty shit that I hear that's going on behind the scenes. So that whole thing kind of just rubbed me wrong on this movie and I don't want to celebrate anything of it. I don't know if that just makes uh, me a closed-minded fool or whatever. You are just flowing acid today. You are a xenomorph. Mm. Okay. I feel good about it. (laughs) Well, listen, I mean, they don't hook up. It's more of the infatuation. I was confused by the movie myself, but... I did enjoy his performance. I don't know. There's something accessible about he's really, it. He's really good. Yeah, because we've all been that young person pining after an older person. And, you know, at some point you've been like, oh my gosh, I have a crush on you. But then the way that he conveyed his confidence, the, I mean, it was just something really endearing and sincere about his performance. And I don't know the seedy underbelly of, you know, LA and all that stuff. and. 
Nispro, I encourage you to talk to someone about that. But I was able to see the wholesomeness of that character. What are your plans? I don't know. What's your future look like? I don't know. How do you like working at Tiny Toes? I hate working at Tiny Toes. You should start your own business. <laughs> what business should I be in? I don't know, what do you like? I don't know. You're an actress. You should be an actress. <laughs> so how'd you become such a hotshot actor? I'm a showman. It's my calling. <sighs> I don't know how to do anything else. It's what I'm meant to do. I mean, ever since I was a kid, I've been a song and dance Come man. Come on. Ever since you were a kid, song and dance man. Where are your parents? My mom works for me. Oh, of course she does. Yes, she does that in my public sense. relations company. In your public relations company? Because you have that. Yes. And you're an actor. Yes. And you're a secret agent too. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a secret agent. <laughs> That's funny. The part where he just wants to see her breasts. And then he's looking at them and his question is, can I touch them? And then she slaps him across the face. That was every young boy's fantasies and response encapsulated in one scene. And I think that he did a, a great job just showing that innocence. Sure, but flip the genders. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not the story. That's not licorice pizza. We could do that, but that's not the But it's the still movie. the problem. Say like a young girl or like a 15-year-old girl asks a 22-year-old man, let me see your penis, and he shows her. That's my problem with this. Yeah, that's not the movie we're talking about, though. <laughs> like that's, But it's yeah. the same. Like it should be. Like That should be the conversation of like older people should not show their biddies, their goodies, and you their know, cookies, their nookies to Oh, my gosh. Kids. Keep going. Keep going. their biddies, their nitties, their cookies. <laughs> their uglies. <laughs> their uglies. Listen. You are bringing up a valid point. It reminds me of an Indiana Jones episode where we we were trying to deduce if Indy and Marion, what the age gap was there and made me feel dirty. But <laughs> it definitely encapsulates a different time. It doesn't make it right. Absolutely not. But there were things happening in that film that I was like, oh, he's just leaving his eight-year-old brother at home alone while he goes out to a bar or a restaurant as a 15-year-old. Like it was a different time and I felt like PTA got all of that into one performance. Gotta say, I think Rudy's kind of selling me a little bit more because fucking Cooper Hoffman is very good. He plays this cocksure little twerp who doesn't know Dick, but acts like he does. But he does it with just the right amount of likability. I think his father would have been incredibly proud. Unfortunately, I think he's overshadowed by Alana Haim. Alana, Alana, Haim, Haim. That was good. Thank I you. Like that. She is the unequivocal star of this movie. And the fact that she wasn't even nominated for Best Actress, it's more than a little depressing. Mm. I agree with you, Rudy. I think that Spro is, that's the Old Testament Spro. There is this- I'm just trying to save the children. <laughs> Nobody's saying fuck the children. Moving on. <laughs> Next on the list, a film called Nobody and an actor slash comedian slash director slash writer slash Saul Goodman, Bob Odenkirk, stars in this one. 
This guy has been in my life about as long as you have, Spro. You and I met autumn semester of 1996 that Mr. Show with Bob and David was on HBO and it was entering its second season and I watched that shit religiously. And then in college, I managed to track down a quote unquote bootleg copy of Run Ronnie Run, which I still maintain is the funniest movie no one's ever seen. Also in college, I talked an ex-girlfriend and her circle friends into renting Melvin Goes to Dinner because it was directed by Odenkirk and it starred him and David Cross. Everybody hated it, thought I was a fucking weirdo. And then of course, Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul. Odenkirk has just continued to pop up in my life. And here at nearly 60 years of age, he kicks everyone's fucking ass and it's a lot of fun. Not an Oscar winner, but damn, it's a lot of fun. Not an Oscar winner, but worthy of a nomination, maybe? I mean, like, you do not see this from Odenkirk at all. Like, one of the original actors slated to be Michael Scott. You would not see that actor and say, he's a bad motherfucker. (laughs) And nobody played to me as like, you know, I'm just a common man. I'm just a dad, suburbia, trying to make things meet. And then like we talked about, he snapped. And he goes back to that life that he was a part of. And oh man, it made me think of John Wick. I want it more. It was just a fantastic performance. And I'm so glad. Even if, you know, the man of his age probably shouldn't be doing that stuff because he, I believe he had like a cardiac episode later after he that. He did. And he blamed it on the workouts necessary yeah. for this movie. But go ahead. Yeah. He put it all out there. And I think he delivered a really fantastic performance that I, I think people need to see. People need to see nobody. Now, on the one hand, There's a long dormant piece of me, now awake, that wants so very badly to play this out. The other, more reasonable piece of me, what's left of it, would like to end our little tete-a-tete right now. What's done is done. After all, we can both rebuild, right? Right. Mm, Wait. Rebuild? I burned it. All of it. What all? Everything you have had everything you had my art i think it was bob odenkirk who experienced a break-in to his home obviously wasn't anything as dramatic as in the movie but that was part of the impetus for him wanting to do this and you brought up john wick earlier it's not the same director but it is same team that did john wick It's so much more accessible than John Wick. Yes. It's wonderful. It's like Joe versus the volcano if Joe ate the volcano. Yes. All right. Pig with Nick Cage. We have talked about Nicolas Cage on the show. We talked about Nicolas Cage, I think, last year with that incredibly long title, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, talking about how much fun that film was. This film, Pig, wasn't that much fun. Everybody was talking about his performance in this one. Actually, it was kind of a surprise that he didn't get more nominations for his role in this one because everybody was saying, oh my gosh, Nicolas Cage finally found a role where it's the role is weird. The movie is weird. So he kind of fits right in. Pig stars Nicolas Cage as a mushroom hunter who has a mushroom hunting sniffing pig who gets taken very dramatically. I could never recommend this to my co-host MC, who's an outright animal lover. But in a scene where he gets beaten up and his pig taken and you hear the squealing, you are on board with Nicolas Cage in kind of what you guys were just talking about with John Wick, where his dog dies, he wants revenge. Nicolas Cage's pig is taken, he wants revenge, and it takes him to some really weird places. 
Nicolas Cage in this performance is subtle Nicolas Cage. He's not bouncing off the walls like his performances in Mom and Dad. Um, he's not being weirdly weird like his performances in like Mandy or something like that. The dude knows how to play just kind of like off kilter. But this film, he's, he's dirty. He's bearded. I think the script works for him. I think the movie works for him. I think the role works for him. But it's so subtle and it's so kind of, it doesn't jump out at you to the point where I would say it's worthy of a nomination. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question before I even ask it, but have either of you seen or heard of a movie called The Rover with Guy Pierce and Robert Pattinson? No. No. Well, I bring it up because I think that that movie and Pig are these kindred spirits that would make a really interesting double feature, with the biggest difference being each man's missing something that has been taken from him and he's trying to get it back. Cage cooks to get his pig back and Pierce kills to get his car back. I just don't know how I feel about Pig. I will confidently say that it's one of Cage's better performances in the last 20 years, but I still felt that the story was far-fetched. Next up is a movie called Red Rocket starring Simon Rex, which is maybe the filthiest movie I've seen in 20 years. And I, I do not mean offensive, though I'm sure that it certainly offended some people. What I mean is grimy and sweaty and gross and abhorrent. And Mikey Saber, played by Simon Rex, has got to be one of the most unlikable motherfuckers I've ever seen. He isn't violent, but he's manipulative, opportunistic. He lies. He's a creep. He's a fucking deadbeat and a shitty friend. And it was really hard to watch this movie because I kept hoping for him to do the right thing. And he doesn't. He learns absolutely nothing. He realizes nothing. And when the movie ends, I was just left assuming that what I had watched in those two hours was a microcosm of his entire life, as if he's a cockroach who nests where he can until he's chased out and has to find another place to hunker down. It's a really awful, shitty movie. <laughs> which leads us to our last non-nominated film, which is called Swan Song. Funny enough, there were two Swan Songs in 2021, and it looks like, Lee, you watched the other one. Oh, this is a fun little surprise. I watched the swan song written and directed by Todd Stevens, starring Udo Kier. Mmm. Yeah. And that's what's album, please. Oh, thirsty, huh? Mm-hmm. In five minutes, I'm supposed to make a dead bitch look human. Not sure I'm up for the challenge. At least she won't complain. For once. <laughs> Was she a handful? Oh, a demanding Republican monster. But she had great taste in shoes. <laughs> Sounds like a nightmare. I adored her. What was yours about? Because my swan song was about a formerly flamboyant hairdresser taking a long walk across a small town to style a dead woman's hair. Well, mine was a vaguely futuristic film where a man who finds out that he's terminally ill decides to clone himself and create this sort of transition where he and the clone trade places so that the family doesn't have to live through the grief of losing their loved one. Two-time Best Supporting Actor winner Mahershala Ali was the, the lead of this film. 
it's decent science fiction, but unfortunately, it's it becomes maudlin by the end. In a few moments, you're gonna lose consciousness. I'm gonna count it down from three, and two, and one. Swan Song is an amazing love story about two people who adore each other, but one of them, Cameron, is dying. Cameron finds out about a technology to create a perfect duplicate of himself and leave this duplicate behind without his family knowing. I know what you're going through. The second you tell your wife your opportunity to do this is gone. Ethically, morally, you understand why this would be a very difficult decision. You're gonna be good, man. No, like this. All those memories that are mine, and my wife's, and my son's. I'm sorry, Tuck Tuck. I can't do this. I mean, I was crying. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but mine was good. Mine was fine. Mine was very. I didn't ask about yours. Oh, fuck me then. I can't believe but, you knew that and you waited until we were recording to be like, hey, guess what? I didn't know that you watched the wrong one. I'm just kidding. I don't know which one was the wrong one, which one's the right one, or if they were both wrong. Doesn't it say right. Mahershala Ali in the fucking document? Yeah, yeah, that you typed and I didn't read. Oh, there so. you go. All right. <laughs> I don't know you right now. Starting off strong. Season right, so. four. <laughs> My 4-4, four, four, make sure all your kids don't grow. What? Tupac? All right. Hit them up with the nominateds. Oh, my all this. God. <laughs> we are not cutting that. Um, well, that's all of the people that were not nominated. Let's get to the other four who were and lost to Will Smith. And let's start with Javier Bardem in Being the Ricardos. You're not telling these people that I checked the wrong box. This is a critical moment, Lucy. If I'm gonna die, You're not. I would rather die standing up. I don't have any idea what I'm that is. I'm not an idiot. I didn't check the wrong box. You saw the headline. You can see the headline from outer space. Then please. Grandpa Fred raised me for when I was age four. He cared about the little guy. He cared about workers' rights. It was a tribute to him. And to say that I checked Grandpa the Fred, wrong. Grandpa Fred, Grandpa Fred was wrong, Lucy. Yes, he didn't tell you the part where they throw your father in prison for the crime of being the mayor of a city. I was chased to this country, Lucy. Believe me, you checked the wrong box. Quite frankly, this doesn't even merit a nomination, and I don't understand it. Rudy, did you see this one? No, I didn't. I I wanted to get to it, but when you guys presented the list to me, it just wasn't going to make the top of the must-watch. Which is funny, because... Go ahead. <laughs> why, why is it funny? Because you're a Latin actor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and this movie held no interest for you whatsoever, even though it was about a Latin actor who was really good at breaking the glass ceiling over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> but it was a boring as shit movie, even written by my favorite writer, which is weird. I don't understand why the award shows flocked to it as they did. Nicole Kidman as Lucy makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Javier Bardem as Ricky Ricardo, absolutely no sense whatsoever. Like we're talking about some of the funniest people ever committed to film being played by two people who are both known as emotionless people on like 
Javier Bardem's best role on screen is what, Rudy? Anton from No Country for Old Men. What's the most you've ever lost on a coin toss? Which is an emotionless, scary creature. So you're going to put him as Ricky Ricardo, who is like funny because of his animations and whatnot. When you watch this film, you're going to be like, I don't recognize Ricky Ricardo in this man. And I don't recognize Lucy in Nicole Kidman either. So the fact that you're like struggling to place these two in their respective roles, it makes absolutely no sense. So I agree with Lee. It shouldn't even be a nomination that we're talking about. And we could probably look at all the people that we talked about that weren't nominated. If you even want to like throw Anthony Ramos as your dark horse under there, like yeah, people would understand it so much better. I, I mean, feel like I'm spitting some more acid here, but... You're not spitting acid here. You're spitting truth. And so I'll back you up on it. I didn't see the film, but we all know who Desi Arnaz is. We know who Ricky Ricardo is. We know. And you don't go, hmm, who's that person today? You know what? Javier Bardem. So you're on point. Don't worry. And you know, you know who was a better pick. Do you want to say it at the same time, Spro? Who would be a better Ricky Ricardo? One, two, three. John, John Leguizamo. But the only person never dancing was my grandfather, because we had him in a life support system. <laughs> my father was keeping him alive against his will, because he wanted him to live long enough to suffer what he made my father suffer. <laughs> and my poor grandfather would be like, John, John, come here, Bobby. Come here, pull the blood, me pull the but Grandpa, you know I'm not supposed to put you out of your misery. Put the motherfucking blood, put it down. He would have been better. All right, let's move on. Too much time spent on this trash. Here's another movie that we've actually talked about, The Power of the Dog and Benedict Cumberbatch's performance. Uh, Spro, you're on record. Not a threatening male antagonist. Yeah, absolutely not. I don't mind the nomination. I'm not going to take this nomination away, but... As a non-threatening male myself sitting in the audience and looking up and watching the baddie and being like, that man doesn't threaten even me, <laughs> makes it really a stretch for me to be like, oh, that's the guy that everybody's fearing in this movie. So what episode was it that we talked about this? It was a year in review and then Oscar show. For season two? 2021. Yeah, season two. So yeah, the season two wrap-up show, you can go back, you can hear all of our thoughts on it, but that's pretty much anytime the subject of Power of the Dog comes up, I have to ask people, did Benedict Cumberbatch scare you? And almost unequivocally, the answer is no. So I don't understand why he was almost awarded. I wonder what little lady made these. <laughs> Actually, I did, sir. My mother was a florist, so I made them to look like the ones in our garden. Oh, well, do pardon me. <laughs> They're just as real as possible. Mm. Mm. Ah, now, gentlemen, look, see, that's what you do with the cloth. Oh, oh. <sighs> It's really just for wine drips. Oh, you got that, boys? Only for the drip. <laughs> <laughs> now get us some food. How many times have you watched Power of the Dog? Twice. Okay. I thought you were going to say once. 
I'm glad that you revisited it because there are great pieces. They just somehow don't hang together like Munich. Yeah, absolutely. Kirsten Dunst is my favorite thing about this movie. Kirsten Dunst and the cinematography and the music, the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Johnny Greenwood? Mm-hmm. All right. So if you've been listening since the beginning, God bless you. Here we are to talk about Andrew Garfield in Tick, Tick, Boom. And I want to turn it over to Rudy, who brought it up so long ago in the episode. No, yeah. I I believe. I was. I had no idea Andrew Garfield could sing like that. I didn't know he could play the piano. Stop the clock. Take time out. Time to regroup before you lose the It hits you. Now, I guess it hit me differently having lived in New York and having to like try to balance a career and a job and make meaningful art and survive the way that he was able to capture all of that as this this actual, the, the real individual and the heartbreaking nature of what he was living through in the 90s and what he knew that he was destined for and just the work that he put in to get there. Out of all of the actors nominated that year, he definitely stepped outside of his role. I have a big issue with the Oscars when I feel like they award an actor who really didn't have to work hard. I'm looking at you, Jennifer Hudson, for Dreamgirls. You won for being a singer. I'm sorry. That's a hot take, but... That didn't really do anything for me. But seeing Andrew Garfield, who for the majority of people who don't listen to Spro and Lee take on the Academy, he's only known as the amazing Spider-Man. So this role was so nuanced and beautiful, and it really, really spoke to me. I love it. I loved everything <laughs> you just said. So you did not know the story of Jonathan Larson before going into this movie? I knew that he wrote Rent and he died Same. before Rent blew up. That's all I knew. That makes it kind of special. Yeah. Ignorance sometimes works in my favor. And I felt like this was one of those moments. I mean, I'm a softie. I cried. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so heartbreaking. So I mean, it was just beautiful. Yeah. The songs in this, I think, are more memorable than the other musicals of this year. Cyrano and uh, In the Heights. Yeah. Okay, one, I love the fact that you brought up an episode that we could do in the future with you, Rudy, and we will get back to that. <laughs> Two, Andrew Garfield, I want to implore you, go back. Anything that he's in, he is amazing in. Hacksaw oh. Ridge, Under the Silver Lake, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Under the Banner of Heaven was a great miniseries, and he has a special spot in our hearts because he goes all the way back to episode one playing Eduardo in The Social Network. I never understood the shit that he got for The Amazing Spider-Man. And I hated the fact that after No Way Home came out, people were like, he needs to have a third one. I'm like, fuck all of you who called him the emo Spider-Man and gave him shit for his entire run. He was always my favorite neighborhood Spider-Man. All of the scenes where he's like talking to the neighborhood children are some of my favorite Spider-Man scenes in the whole series. He's always great. I do not like the fact that Emma Stone won for La La Land. I wanted Andrew Garfield to win for Tick, Tick, Boom because Emma Stone undeservedly won her Oscar and Andrew Garfield was so much better in Tick, Tick, Boom than she was in La La Land. 
I'm sorry it's, that the negativity is probably louder, but I wanted all that to say I love Andrew Garfield in this movie. I think he's a super talented actor, and I agree with uh, Rudy. He's going to be on my top three. Yeah. I can stomach it if it comes to it. I can stomach it. Let's move on. Not much left to go. In fact, there's only one more, and that's Denzel Washington as the titular Macbeth in The Tragedy of Macbeth, directed by Joel Cohen, the first film that he directed without his brother, Ethan. He should have died here after. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow... And tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out we've candle. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So I think my favorite Easter egg about this movie is that if you go back to an episode with Emily, I am looking on IMDb and realizing that this movie is about to exist. And we all get super hyped on the fact that Denzel is about to play Macbeth, Francis McDormand, Lady Macbeth, and that Joel Cohen is the director of the thing. And we're all fucking melting over this movie. Yeah, I was like, get that to me now. Yeah. Comes out, none of us see it in the theater. (laughs) (laughs) None of us watch it until we have to for this episode. And the funny thing is, it's not a bad movie. I don't know, Lee, if you had to, but I know Rudy and I had to study Shakespeare. Uh. So we're well versed in all of this. And I'm not going to say anything bad about Denzel's performance because he did what he was supposed to do. Francis McDormand did an amazing job. But nobody in this film holds a candle to what I think Catherine Hunter does as the witches. Catherine Hunter, every time she's on screen in this movie, I could not look away. She was mesmerizing. She was amazing. And if she's not going to get awarded for her performance in this movie, I'm going to say nobody should have. Ooh, I'm going to back you up on that. Whoa. I think Denzel is an amazing, like he's a classically trained actor. He's brilliant. And high school kids for years to come will enjoy this film as it will be the most recent (laughs) cinematic venture of (laughs) Macbeth. But it was a visually pleasing movie to watch. Absolutely. And I feel like it had to be because Shakespeare is not readily accessible to everybody. People hear Shakespeare who aren't English majors, you know, who aren't theater majors, who don't really love Shakespeare the way that we do. They hear Shakespeare and they check out because they feel like it's a foreign language. I can appreciate what Denzel did and Frances McDormand. I love her so much, but this wasn't a reach. Like this, I think this speaks to, once again, Denzel has been doing Shakespeare for decades. This is not a reach for Denzel. I guess that's fair. I, I, this is the first Shakespeare play that I ever fell in love with. Did you read this junior year, Spro? I can't remember. Did you go to the Beck Center old- to see it? So yes, but I feel like junior so junior year was Julius Caesar for me. Julius Caesar was the first one that I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. So Macbeth kind of was in one ear out the other. Were you me. in advanced classes? 
No, asshole. Jesus. <laughs> I wasn't. I, wa- I wasn't. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought, because, uh, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> you were calling me out. Like, no, no, were no. Were you in advanced classes? <laughs> oh, I was. Yeah, all right, fine. Maybe that sounded accusatory. Were you, were you in integrated math? <laughs> I did not I was mean in calculus. it that way. I did not mean it that way. I was not a tryhard. Me neither. Not saying that other AP taking people are tryhards, but. <laughs> well, this was the first one that spoke to me. Uh, I never got a chance to teach Macbeth, so I don't know the text like I know, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. And so script aside, it's obviously incredibly truncated, but Rudy said it. It's a incredibly visually appealing movie. Like, holy shit. I couldn't take my eye off of most shots, especially like the bird's eye shots down in, into these like cells that they were, oh, it's just fucking yuck. But you're right, bro. Catherine Hunter is tremendous. I think everybody's really good in this movie. And uh, it's like watching a nightmare. Yeah. Which is the way I experienced Macbeth um, <laughs> when I read it in high school. I would take Macbeth to Cleveland area high schools and perform it for a whole week for the children of Lakewood and Bay Village and North Olmstead. And yeah. I love Bay Village. So watching this, I was like, I was immediately transported to junior and senior English classes and I'm performing the dagger scene for these kids. I really liked it. Dude, the part where who is the character that's like, fuck you, Macbeth, I'll fucking murder you. <laughs> And Macbeth is like, all right, dude, let's do it. Denzel just dismantles that guy. Holy (laughs) shit. Amazing. All right, we've been through all the folks that didn't even get a nomination. We went through all the other folks that got a nomination but didn't win. Time to vote. Spro? Okay, so this is how it's going to go down, fellas. (laughs) Okay. We're going to go through our top three picks. Our top pick will get three points. Our second pick will get two points. Our bottom pick will get one point. And then I'll tally up the scores. Whoever wins is our winner, and we just all have to stomach it. Mm. I will start with my number three pick. And really, this industry is all about who you know, and it's all about backroom deals. And as far as my third pick goes, I could do this because I have a bridge. I have a connection to him. I'm going to say Anthony Ramos in In the Heights. If he ever listens to this episode, why don't you pick up a phone? Rudy, you can go ahead and go second. My number three is um, going to be Cooper Hoffman. I just, there was something about it and it really spoke to me. It's the equivalent to the, not in theme or performance, but like how Robert Downey Jr. got a nomination for Tropic Thunder. Like you're like, what? I really felt his performance. He's my number three. Uh, I'm going to go with Stephen Graham from Boiling Point as my number three. All right. We don't have to talk about it too much. Stephen Graham is my number two. Anthony Ramos is my number two for In the Heights. Interesting. I'm going to go with Joaquin Phoenix in Come On, Come On, which is a movie that Spro didn't like, Rudy didn't see, and (laughs) nobody really wanted to talk about. But (laughs) (laughs) you might as well do it now. 
So we skipped this movie when we were going through the non-nominateds, but Joaquin Phoenix plays Johnny, a radio personality, not a DJ, but somebody who does interviews, sort of like NPR, it feels like. And he volunteers to watch his sister's son for an extended period of time. He's not accustomed to taking care of kids, and his nephew Jesse is really not normal. And the film is sort of about these two blood relatives who are separated by so much coming to understand and love each other. So, should I call you, like, Papa or Dad or just Johnny? You can call me whatever feels comfortable to you. I, I, I don't know. It's just I'm not used to being able to choose. Maybe we can just take this process slowly and and, and see, see how it feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I'm just really sorry that your children died. Um, you know, I don't think I can do that part. Yeah, I, I told you that's how me and mom do it. If it makes sense for your mom to do that, that's cool, but it doesn't make sense for me, and that's what oh, I was explaining to you. Why does it make sense for you? Because it's, it's ridiculous. Is it? It's sad. The question is, why do you want to do it? You are just terrible at this. Oh, man, I'm trying. Let me ask you a question. Why does everything have to be like this kind of weird, eccentric thing that you do? I know, but why not just do something normal? Like everything in your real life. What's normal? Okay, fine. Good point. I was not looking forward to watching it. It's definitely too long but it felt almost entirely genuine. I think Phoenix is absolutely at his best when he shares the screen with young Woody Norman, who plays Jesse. This is a weird fucking kid, and it makes me feel so uncomfortable. in some points of the movie, but it's it's amazing. It would really be interesting to know to what extent Phoenix and the writer-director Mike Mills kind of coached this kid, allowed him to improv, or maybe even like on-set real-life struggles with this kid. I, I don't know. Or this kid is a fucking prodigy, but what an emotional movie. What an emotional experience. Beautifully said. All right, so just talked about it. But my number one pick is Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. I'm going to have to agree with Spro. My number one is Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom. I figured it was going to go this way. I tipped my hand really early. Regardless, we'll still go with Adil Akhtar in Ali and Ava playing Ali. Final tally. There's actually a three-way tie for second. Adil Akhtar for Ali and Ava. Stephen Graham for Boiling Point and Anthony Ramos for In the Heights. But the winner is Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. I think of the first summer back from college. We smoked a bowl on the Kennedy Breakwater and Michael told me that he was gay. Is this real Is this real I think of our friends, so many. I think of their funerals. I think of their parents, not even 50, saying the Kaddish over their children. Is this real life? I think of them, and I think of Michael. And before I understand what's happening, I start running.
past the pond, past the carousel. Is this real life? The ticking is so loud now, I can't hear anything. Is this real? Is this real? Is this real? My heartbeat is pounding in my throat. The wind is shrieking through the trees. The sky is darkening. I want it to stop. I want it all to stop. Our three-way tie for second. Funny enough, none of them were actually nominated for the award. I think it was a bad year for nominations. Yeah, I I agree because I felt like King Richard was obviously the strongest until I saw Tick, Tick, Boom. And then I was like, oh, yes. But then after that, there really wasn't anything else that I would have watched or considered, honestly. I was the only person that voted for Adil Akbar, and he still got to come in second place in a tie. It's wonderful. (laughs) It is. I really wish, like, if that's like your number one... I feel like everything I say now sounds negative. So I'm going to try and do it with I a didn't talk about my face. enough. No, you just didn't tell me to go watch it, silly. I would have gone watched it if you said it was your number one. <laughs> I had no idea who I was going to give it to. Gotcha. Well, I'm going to go check out Ali and Ava now because of your recommendation. And I'm hoping everybody goes out to watch Boiling Point and definitely Tick, Tick, Boom. Rudy, how do you feel? I feel like we did good work here. We did what the Academy could not do on that night. And I'm proud of us. Good job, everyone. Rudy, I love having you around. Thank you. I feel the same way. I kind of do want to, like, you know, antagonize you a little bit. Please. That's still so (laughs) So nice. All right. So we're taking taking that Oscar away from Mr. Will Smith, and we're giving it to Andrew Garfield for his portrayal of John Larson in Tick, Tick, Boom. Rudy, one more time, thanks for being here. You're always welcome. Oh, guys, thanks so much for having me. You know how special this podcast is to me. I always want to, I don't want to disappoint you, and I'm just excited to be a part of it. Hell Do you have yeah, anything yeah. you want to plug? Well, you know what, fans? If you love this podcast and you've you've checked out the Rushmore podcast, season two is coming at you in a few weeks. And I'm going to say season two is probably our best season. I'm pretty excited. Season one was a lot of fun. Can't wait to hear it. Spro, do you have anything you want to plug? Seven more episodes of Spro and Lee take on the Academy coming at you. And then as always, we have what Lee refers to as the podfather of all the podcasts that we got going on right now, which is Second Chance Cinema has just wrapped up season three. Yay, positivity. (laughs) Coming out my pores. Poor positivity. Positivity (laughs) for the poor people of the world. Skid Row, where are we going with this thought? I don't know. Lee, take it away. Spro and I will be, maybe in the next five months, standing on a frozen Lake Erie shore together. He's going to chill the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to die in Taiwan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Until next time, I'm Lee. I'm Spro. I'm Rudy. And we hope that Spro does not die in Taiwan. (laughs) And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present you with scenes from a modern romance as told in song. Can we talk about this later, please? When, Jonathan? When is later? Not tonight. If I think... 
thought about sharing my thoughts, then my reaction to your reaction to my reaction would have been more revealing. I have been rehearsing all day. I have been up since four this morning. I have been trying to write a song for a week, and I am nowhere. Spro and Lee will return to take on the Oscar for Best Picture of 1990. In the meantime, if you like visualizations to go with your audio listening pleasure, you can always check us out on Instagram at Take On The Academy. Find us on Facebook if you're still kicking around there. Send love notes to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. Hell, you could even rate and review us on your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google, Facebook, wherever you prefer. And finally, thanks for listening. Really, thank you. We'd probably do this show in our underwear in our mom's basement covered in peanut butter, but it's nicer to know we've got you along for the ride. So take a bow and ta-ta for now. A million miles away all the time. Actually, I'm right here. Are you Jonathan? Actually, because I know you. I'm not mad that you got mad when I got mad when you said I should go drop dead. If I were you and I done what I done, I'd do what you did when I gave you the ring, having said what I said.